And uh, good morning, church. Good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. So glad to be with you. Uh, Let me invite you, please, to take out your copy of Scripture. And we're going to be again in the book of Romans. We're in the second week of our series on the story we tell. And uh, if you didn't bring a copy with you, good news. We have some copies in the back there. So please go grab one. If you don't own a copy, please accept that as a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to, to take that home and begin to read it. And I'm convinced that the words contained therein will change your life. Uh, well, uh, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 9 through 20 primarily, but we'll be bouncing around a little bit in the first three chapters this morning. Fair warning. All right? All right. I wonder how many of you have ever been the recipients of some bad news? Anybody? Yeah, of, of course, right? We've all been recipients of bad news from time to time. How many of you liked it? <laughs> None of us, right? We don't, we don't like bad news. No, none of us like uh, to hear that. Back in my early 30s, I uh, went to an annual appointment with a doctor, and I got some bad news. Now, I shouldn't have gone to the appointment, but I did, all right? And, and they said, you know, Andy, uh, your numbers are, aren't what they, they're supposed to be, and if you don't figure some things out, you're going to be in for kind of a world of hurt. Uh, you need to start paying attention to this. And I tell you, I didn't, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to listen to the doctor. (laughs) I was a father with young kids. I was fairly young in my life. I was busy in ministry. I was doing my hobbies, doing my thing. I had a lot going on. And I didn't want to have to add yet another layer to my life. And yet, I I think you'll agree, I I needed to hear the news. (laughs) I needed to hear it. Because when you have health issues, ignoring them typically doesn't remedy the problem, does it? All right? Now, None of us said we like to hear bad news. None of us, right? I mean, if we have a choice, we're going to choose good news over bad news every time. And yet, whether we're trying to cash flow a business or or to teach struggling students or as a student to slog through our AP exams or, or whether it's a personal thing, a health thing, a relationship thing, if something actually is bad that's a part of the equation, we need to know. I mean, if if your business is spending twice as much as you take in, you're not served by pretending otherwise, are you? (laughs) If your students don't understand the material you're trying to teach, then you really shouldn't assume that you're going to be the teacher of the year in the district. (laughs) If, If you're a student and you're failing your tests, you shouldn't expect to get an A, right? Sometimes bad news is exactly what we need to hear. Now, Last week, we defined the the gospel, the euangelion, as the good news, and that it is, praise God. It's good news. But church, to fully appreciate the good news, I'm sorry to tell you, today is about bad news. I got to bring some bad news to you today. Now, keep in mind, what we just sang about reflects the good news. The good news is coming. But we're going to hang out in some bad news this morning. So if you need to leave right now, I understand. No, I'm I'm kidding. Don't, Don't leave. It's important. If you online, I know it's easy for you to leave, all right? Don't, don't leave, okay? <laughs> but we need to hear the bad news, church. And, and see, all if, if all we do is share good news without any bad news, we're only telling part of the story. And, and I'm committed for us here at Cornerstone that we're going to tell the whole story of Scripture. We're going to know the whole story of Scripture because the story ultimately is the euangelion. Ultimately, it's great news. It's not just good news. It's the most important news in the history of the universe. But we need to tell the whole thing, okay? And so uh, this story, this true story, this gospel story uh, has uh, some bad news in it. Now, every story has several things, right? It has characters, it has a plot, it has a setting. And this story, like every story, also has a conflict. There's a, there's a conflict in this story. And, and so uh, he, he, here's what it is. 
uh, we, we established the setting last week, right? Our good and our powerful God, He creates the universe, and He sets the universe up by His standard. He sets the mark, and, 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 and it's good. And the universe is set according to His righteousness. He's the standard by which all things are held accountable. And when God makes something, He does a good job. He makes it good, right? But, but tragically, the story doesn't end at creation. It doesn't end in the Garden of Eden. And, and here's where the conflict comes in. See, in Genesis 3, we read that the serpent goes up to Eve and he convinces her that God is holding out on her. That if she would just eat the forbidden fruit, that one thing that God said you can't do it, if she just do it, she would be like God. She would be as wise as God. She would know good and evil. And see, the serpent convinced Eve not to accept God's standard of righteousness. And she believed the lie. And so she took the fruit and she ate it. And then she handed some to her husband. And he ate it. And then in Genesis 3-7, one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loincloths. Friends, this was, a, this was a tragic and a colossal fall where, where Adam and Eve once flourished in the Garden of Eden, free from anxiety, free from pain, free from the threat of death, free from shame. That same shame now flushed their bodies and they reached for fig leaves as fast as they could. And they were now afraid of the God with whom they had once walked in the cool of the day. And, and they now felt achy bones and, and sagging skin. And they knew the pain of hard labor, both in the fields and in the birth chamber. Death was now their destiny. See, God had set the mark. And at the advice of the serpent, they swung for it. And they failed miserably. They missed. And so the story that, that began with God setting the mark with His righteousness, with His holiness, moves to a new chapter as it continues with a new plot point. It continues with the conflict. And, and this is the story of humanity's plight. This is the mess we're in, okay? And friends, th this is bad news. It's bad. And so to help us make sense of where we're at, uh, we're going to go back to this book of Romans. And you'll remember that last week in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, we, we discovered the good news of the gospel, which, which is God's power for salvation. For who? Remember? For everyone who believes, everyone who believes, right on. But then we understood that God has revealed himself in righteousness and wrath, and so that all people are held accountable to his standard, to his mark. And I hope you've been working through your memory verse, all right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, I promise, but Romans 1.20, I said that I would memorize it and you could ask me, so I'm going to try it here. I have it here just in case I fail, and that happens sometimes, right? But, but it says this, for God in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of creation in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse, all right? Did I do it right? Okay, I wasn't, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that. Thanks. <laughs> no, guys, we, we memorize some scripture so that we can have it in our, in our toolbox when we're preparing to share uh, the story with others, okay? So if you haven't done that yet, go for it. I don't care if you say it verbatim, doesn't matter. G get it in your heart, in your head, in your mind, okay? God sets the mark, and he's revealed himself to us, Okay? And so we need to reckon with who he is. A God of righteousness and a God of wrath demands our attention. Amen? 
Amen. All people are without excuse. And so now today, we're going to pick up Paul's argument in Romans 3, 9 through 20. By the way, did you know that Scripture is more than just a collection of verses that say nice things about God and us? The writers in Scripture, they're always arguing for something. They're always making a case for something. And if you can read Scripture and you read through a book, you start to realize, wow, Paul is building on his argument and he's building towards something. And if you can, if you can identify what that is, it makes the Scripture come alive. I'm, I'm saying Paul is arguing for something here. And we pick up the argument in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And so this is the, the second primary theme in this gospel narrative. If God sets the mark, then what? Okay. And to answer that, we go to the text. Starting in verse 9, Paul writes, What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I told you, it's bad news, right? In church, the word sin here that we end with in verse 20 is actually the same word that Paul begins with in verse 9. It's the word hamartia, okay? And Paul says that we're all under hamartia. We're all under sin. And I want you to notice something. He doesn't say we're all under sins, plural, Okay? He doesn't say we're all under sins. He says we're all under sin, singular. Why does he do that? Well, when, when Paul tells us, uh, uh, what, what, what that tells us is that when Paul claims that all of us are under sin, he, he's not saying that, that all of us have done some bad things in our lives. Okay, That's not what he's saying, although we have, haven't we? <laughs> I've never met anybody that's disagreed with that. All of us have done some bad things at our lives at one point or another. But church, to be under sin means more than just having committed some sins. A guy named Richard Longenecker helps us here, and he says that to be under sin is to be in a state of being under God's righteous condemnation of sin, which is the dire situation of everybody. Okay? To be under sin is to be under God's righteous condemnation of sin. And that's everybody's situation. Remember, God sets the mark. And, and that means that His wrath is poured out against those who miss it. Church, to be under sin is to be under curse, under death. That's what happened in the garden. And that's what's true for us today, apart from intervention. And that's bad news. In Romans 5.12, Paul writes, Sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Church, God gave Adam and Eve a task. He said, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. I want you to do this for me. I want you to represent me in all creation. And when Adam rebelled against God as the first human, he acted as humanity's representative before God. He had a job to do, and he failed. Hence, when Adam failed, when Adam sinned, his seed became stained with sin. And everybody who follows Adam is born into the state of what we call original sin. We're born into sin. All who would become a part of Adam's race, which is the human race, okay? All who become uh, born into Adam's race receive that seed of sin passed down through Adam, through the generations. Again, that's bad news. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. Flip back a few pages with me, would you? Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul's speaking about Gentiles here in Rome, but, 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 but doesn't it apply to Adam and Eve? For although they knew God, they walked with, with God in the cool of the day. They didn't honor Him. They honored the serpent, didn't they? They gave thanks uh, not to God, but they, they accepted what the serpent said. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Church, look how far humanity has fallen. Look how far we've fallen. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they exchanged the glory of God for, for a big old pile of garbage. <laughs> they ultimately exchanged life for death. And church, the kind of death we're, we're talking about here, it's physical death, to be sure. Adam and Eve uh, suffered physical death as a result of their sin, but it's not just physical. It's more than that. It's, it's spiritual death. Paul, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 1, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And church, that means that, that spiritually, uh, though we were born physically alive, we're born spiritually dead. We're born under the curse of Adam. That, that by Adam's sin, we remain under sin as well. And friends, again, that is bad news. Now, as those born in sin, as born into this state of original sin, who are spiritually dead and enslaved to sin, we're also steeped in its influence. We're also steeped in its influence. You might say we're given to sin. Look how Paul describes the influence of sin amongst the Gentiles in Romans 1. Verse 24, look at this. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's not the kind of thing you really want to say amen to, is it? It's heavy. You see what happens here? When someone is steeped in sin and they refuse to turn to God for the solution, Paul says that God gives them up to the lustful impurity of their hearts. He gives them up. Sexual promiscuity was a rampant issue in first century Rome. It was a big deal. Not much has changed, has it? Our culture says that everyone that, that wants to is entitled to have sex with whomever they want. 
And as long as they aren't hurting somebody else, who who are we to say otherwise? But here in Romans, Paul says, look, if sex is your idol, and that's the language that he uses here, he uses the language of idolatry, if that's your idol, if you make that higher than God, guess what? God's going to give it to you. God's going to turn it over to you, but be careful. Be careful. James Smith says, the problem with promiscuity isn't just that it transgresses the law or that it chews up other people and spits them out as leftovers. It does that. But he says, it's not simply the fact that it hollows me out and reduces me to organs and glands and and all as a perverted way to feed a soul hunger. But he says, the baseline problem with promiscuity is that it doesn't work. It's doomed to fail. It's a false god, a false idol. Paul says, if you want that, if you want that kind of sin, God's going to let you have it. In fact, he's going to give you over to it, but be careful what you ask for. It's an empty pursuit. Be warned. And then he goes on in in verses 26 and 27 to observe how this, this appetite for sexual idolatry distorts God's creation design for human sexuality. And so God gives those who have rejected him up to dishonorable passions. And the text says very clearly that that includes homosexual relationships and activities. Listen to what Paul says. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Paul. Verse 26, he says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Again, there's this giving up language here. Three times in this text, God says, God, it's, Paul says God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Church, God's creation design for marriage and sexuality is now marred and stained. It was in the first century. It was an issue for Rome. It's still an issue today. It's not a new issue. It's been around a long time, but it's a real issue nonetheless. And then finally, in in verses 28 to 30, Paul goes on to describe how all of this leads us down a path such that failing to acknowledge God, verse 28, God gives us up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And then he lists a whole bunch of things, not just sexual sin, but all kinds of sin. We're given over to manners of all manners of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, and you can read on down the line. And church, what what Paul is saying here is that that once we start down this path, once we begin to call evil good, we're prone to lose our minds in our sin. We're, We're prone to check out from God's righteous standard and to totally adopt something contrary to God's will, God's righteousness. We leave the mark. Paul's warning us here. And you know, as as we experience the onslaught of the sexual revolution, that that which advocates for sex without consequence, that that which makes children's lives secondary to a person's right to sexual gratification, that that which assaults God's creation design for sex to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, we're seeing Romans 1 played out right, right in front of us once again. And if we're honest... We realize, church, we've been given over to that which we've been pursuing since the very beginning. The serpent convinced Adam, 
If you do this, you're going to be like God. You can have it. We'll be careful what we ask for. We, like Adam and Eve, want to call ourselves God. We, we want to set the mark. But church, God won't allow it. He, he won't. And He'll give us over to that which we've been pursuing, but make no mistake, we'll be consumed by it. This is part of God's judgment. And here's the thing, church. And here's where... Well, you'll see what I mean. For the Jews... They might have looked at the issue, those issues with the Gentiles and they saw what was going on. The Jews didn't struggle with some of the same specific sins, probably. For the most part, at least it wasn't open. It was open in Rome. The Jews might have been tempted to look out at those Romans and say, see what they're doing? They're awful. How raunchy is that? How disgusting? How messed up are they? And whether it's issues of sexual uh, infidelity, homosexuality, uh, for, the, for the Romans, infanticide was a big deal. <laughs> they hadn't figured out how to do abortions safely yet, so they just killed babies once they came out of the womb. I mean, it was, it was a mess. Man, are they off the rails. That, that would have been the, the notion of the Jews. But hear me on this. As the Jews looked down their noses at the Gentiles, they, they were prone to miss looking in a mirror at themselves. As they look down their noses at the Gentiles, they're prone to, to, to miss looking in a mirror at themselves because if they did that, they were afraid of what they would find. And church, I think the temptation for those of us, and I put myself in this category, who have grown up and ha with and have conservative values, those of us who have grown up perhaps in the church, the temptation for us is to do the same thing. Remember what Paul says in Romans 3.9? Did you catch it? He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Nope, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. I think this is the argument that Paul is making here. Yes, this stuff is, is not good. This stuff violates God's standard of righteousness. But guess what? So does this. You're, you're going to see that here as we keep going. And so Paul backs up his argument. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, hey, you Jews, you, you value Scripture? Guess what? As it is written. You see this? As it is written. And then in verses 10 through 18, he, he quotes from several of the Psalms. And as he does that, he, he, he's speaking to these Jews who, who's, who might be saying, look, you think you're off the hook? Let me take you to your own Bible. Let me tell you what the Bible says. And he starts quoting Psalms here. Yeah, all those are in quotations, hopefully, in your Bibles. Uh, uh, verses 10 through 18, he quotes Psalm 14.1 that says, There is none who does good. Uh, the psalmist wrote that, 14.1. And then he quotes from Psalm 5 that says, Their throat is an open grave. And, and these other Psalms, all these other Psalms that describe the wickedness of mankind. And he's pointing out to the Jews that in light of the revealed righteousness of Jesus Christ, though they might wish to attribute wickedness to those outside of Judaism, which is the context of these Psalms, it is, the fact remains that the unrighteousness of the Gentiles so too exists with them. That's the argument that Paul's making here. And that's what he does so masterfully. You, you Jews, you, you love quoting these Psalms that describe how bad everybody else is, but let me tell you this. In light of Jesus, these Psalms actually apply to you as well. You too are unrighteous. You too are spiritually diseased. You too are, are cursed. <laughs> Friends, it's so easy to point fingers. 
And, and we must not call evil good. Are the issues in Romans 1 dishonoring to God? Yes. But it's so easy to point to Romans 1 without looking at Romans 3. Because the issues in Romans 3 are the same in that they are equally disqualifying for the kingdom of God. They disqualify us for the kingdom of God. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous. None. No, not one. Not one. I much prefer preaching about grace. <laughs> we'll get to that, okay? We'll get to that. Look with me what Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 3. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. <laughs> you ever had a conversation with one of your kids and said, No more? Every mouth may be stopped. Paul says that all who are under the law are accountable to God. How is that? For, for what are we held accountable? Well, if you go back to chapter 2, uh, you read this in verse 6. Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. He'll render to each one according to his works. Friends, each one, you and I, are to be judged by our works. We're accountable to God for what we do, and this applies to everyone. First, to the Gentiles. Uh, look at verse 14. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do, the law, do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Church, the Gentiles didn't have the law of Moses. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They weren't written to them. They didn't know it. Still, by nature, they followed the law in at least some capacity. <laughs> you think the Ten Commandments, what do the Ten Commandments tell us? Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't, don't cheat on your spouse. The Gentiles knew right from wrong. It was built in to their conscience. And what Paul means here is that even this basic knowledge of the law, proven by their works, by their adherence to it, makes them accountable to that law. That's his logic. Verses 15 and 16. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Church, God sets the mark. He sets the mark. He's made known to all humanity that which is sufficient to hold them accountable for their sin. Now, that's, that's for the Gentiles. But how about for the Jews? Well, if you were a Jew, you, you had the law. God gave the law to you through Moses. Nonetheless, you didn't follow it, at least not in its entirety. Hence, you're, you're held accountable. See, having the law wasn't enough. And according to verse 25, neither was simply maintaining the rituals such as circumcision. See, you could be circumcised, but if you didn't, which was a key tenant, which was a key sign of your commitment to the covenant uh, of Judaism, you could be circumcised, but if you didn't obey the law, you, you brought judgment on yourself. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It doesn't mean anything. It's as if you're not even a Jew. You might as well not even be there. 
You're going to be judged by your works. It's about keeping the law, not, not putting up appearances. And tragically, tragically, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Did you catch that? I want to read that again. Listen to this. Look at it in your text, if you would. Chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Think about the contrast there between David, who we studied earlier, this man after God's own heart. David sinned. He did. But his heart remained soft to the Lord. It wasn't impenitent. When, when it was time to repent, he did. Church, ultimately, God will judge humanity according to their works. And that means that one day, the, the book of life is going to be opened. And all whose names are not written in the book of life are going to be held accountable for their works. And they're going to be thrown uh, into the lake of fire where they're finally and forever going to incur the fullness of God's wrath. It's heavy. That's the bad news. In Revelation 20, verse 12, John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is God's revelation to John about what's to come. John's seeing what is going to happen in the future. Then he says, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then in verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Church, we don't like talking about it. I don't like talking about it. But the lake of fire is hell. It's that place of eternal torment, separation from God. And I say to you what I've said earlier, not today, but in the past, if God didn't hate sin, if God didn't judge sin, then what kind of a God would He be? He wouldn't be very good, would He? God's wrath is a righteous wrath. In Romans 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? If God really sets the mark, if God sets the standard, then His wrath against sin is the only plausible outcome. A righteous God must hold the world accountable. God's wrath is righteous. Remember, God sets the mark, church. Now, just in case you missed it, we've said that humanity's plight means that all are under sin. Not sins, but under that, that state of being in condemnation. Under sin. That we're born in sin. And we're given to sin. And that certainly is bad news. It's bad news. And in our sin, we're accountable to God. We have no defense. Our mouths have been stopped like that parent speaking to the child. There's no argument here. 
Our mouths have been stopped by God's holiness and by God's glory. And in that, we're held accountable to God as we're judged by our works. Our works reveal our lowly state. Whether Jew or Gentile, there is none righteous. Here's the thing. Yes, we're judged by our works. Here's the other thing. Nobody does enough works in order to qualify them for God's kingdom. Nobody gets there. We cannot meet the standard. When Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one, he means it quite literally. And in case you didn't understand that phrase, he says, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good. I said it earlier, I'll say it again, not even one. It's bad news, church. Hence, we're we're subject to God's wrath. And again, just in case you missed this, it's, it's regardless of our background. It's regardless of our background. I go back to 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Church, those apart from the law are accountable to God. The Gentiles. Guess what? You and me, unless you're Jewish, we're Gentiles. Okay? We're accountable to God. We're going to be judged by our works. But it's not just the Gentiles. It's not just uh, the Gentiles. It's also the Jews. Those who are under the law are also accountable to God. Paul writes this in Romans 2.17 and then 23 and 24. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says, you you Jews who who don't practice what you preach dishonor God in the world amongst the Gentiles. You don't get a pass for being born into the faith. You too are held accountable for your works. Church, all humanity is lost under the weight of its sin. We're born into it. We're given to it. And with that, we're accountable to God for it. We're judged by our works. We're under God's wrath regardless of our background. It's heavy news. It's bad news, friends. And so look what Paul writes in Romans 3.20 as we prepare to wrap up Paul's argument here. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we have this notion that we can achieve righteousness through the law. That, that if we just know the right thing, if we just do the right thing, if we just figure it all out, we could be there. That's <laughs> not what Paul says here. Church, regardless of our background, regardless of our spiritual or physical acumen, regardless of our self-discipline or our attitude or our aptitude or even our fortitude, regardless of anything we do, we cannot save ourselves. We're utterly helpless to save. We can't do it. Dead people can't save themselves, church. That's not how it works. We can know the Bible inside and out. We can have every Sunday school answer, but our inability to keep the law constantly reminds us of our helplessness. (laughs) You think you can keep the law? Please, would you listen to all 28 messages of the Sermon on the Mount from this last year? I beg you. Maybe just listen to one and, and see. You think you can keep the law? Look at David. David's the man after God's own heart. And look what he did. 
Church, our knowledge of the law and our inability to keep it only reveals how great is the mark that God sets and how far short we fall of it. Ephesians 2.9 says that salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. None of us. I can't boast. You can't boast. Jew, Gentile, anybody. We, we cannot boast. Salvation is not by works. Friends, so many of us have skipped the bad news on the way to the good. We've ignored the fact that we're under sin and we're accountable to a holy God that, that will be judged by our works and therefore left under God's wrath regardless of our background and that we're helpless to do anything about it. But friends, if, you, if your health is degenerating, if your business is tanking, if your grades are, are failing, <laughs> you need to know. If you're spiritually dead, you, you need to know. Because until you admit that, you won't be able to receive the good news on the other side. Yeah, if you don't go to the doctor, you'll, you'll not know that you're, you're sick. It won't change the results of what happens. And hear me on this, church. I, I don't relish bringing a message like this. I don't. I'd much rather hang out on the good side. And in fact, we do that most of the time, don't we? Here, in a good way. Because the good news is good news. It's worth telling. We're not masochists around here. <laughs> right? We celebrate grace. And I want you to, to get to the good news. I want you to be equipped with it. But, but friends, the second plot point in the story that's very clear from Romans 1 through 3, that's very clear from Genesis 3, that's very clear as the gospel unfolds throughout the entire biblical narrative, is this. We, we miss the mark. God sets the mark. We miss the mark. Would you say this with me? Ready? We miss the mark. Say it again. We miss the second one. We miss the mark. The first plot point, remember that? Say it, would you? God sets the mark. One more time, God sets the mark. We miss the mark, church. Romans 1.20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. The standard is there. The mark is there. God sets the mark. But we miss it. We miss it. Now, I've challenged you. Last week, I challenged you. I hope many of you interacted in your growth groups about this uh, this week to interact with these plot points, to try to memorize them. And they're really simple. We had a fairly thick uh, message today, didn't we? There was a lot in there. But it boils down to something very simple. It's that plot point. We missed the mark. I want to I encourage you. I want to challenge you. Put these to memory. This is not the only way to share the gospel. It's not only the only way to tell the story, but it's, it's a way, and I think it's a helpful way. God sets the mark. We miss the mark. And the last two plot points, I, I told you them last week. I'll tell you them today. Jesus hits the mark, and I stand with Jesus. Okay, that's where we're going. So hang with me. Come back, you people at home. Come back here. There's good news coming. But, but interact with these plot points and, and share with them. When you see a cornerstone friend or family member or whomever at, at the coffee shop, at school, hey, what's the first plot point? Uh, challenge them. Oh, yeah, it's God sets the mark. What's the second one? Well, well, we missed the mark, okay? Rehearse this together and then rehearse these verses. These are easier than the ones last week. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Say that with me, ready? None is righteous, no, not one. 
Okay? That, that's the first verse I want you to memorize. You already did it. Say it with your eyes closed. Ready? None is righteous. No, not one. You did it. Awesome. I had my eyes closed. I wasn't checking up on you, all right? And then, then one more. It's very familiar. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Say that with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the bad news, friends. But the story gets better. Because the conflict doesn't end with us. <laughs> Praise God. The conflict doesn't end with us. But church, if we're going to share the good news, this is part of the story that we must tell. And I ask you, are you willing to tell it? Are you willing to share it? Because eternity is at stake. I hope that you'll dive into your growth groups this week, have some great discussion. I hope you'll practice these plot points, the memory verses, and I hope that, that you'll grow in your confidence to share this most critical, most important story in all of time and space, that Jesus came to remedy our problem. That Jesus fixes it. And he's, he's leading us to glory, if we'll accept. Friends, the world needs to know Good news is coming. Let's stay tuned and let's pray. Father, I thank you for each man, each woman, each student, each child that's listening to my voice today. And this is a heavy message, and certainly Romans 1 through 3 is a heavy part of Scripture. And I confess to you, I... I I fight with my own emotions even in sharing a message like this because I love these people and I want them to have joy and I want them to leave here with a sense of uplift and confidence in your grace and in your mercy. But Lord, I'm convinced because your word teaches it so clearly that until we understand and appreciate how far we've fallen, until we understand that we've missed the mark that you've set, we can't fully appreciate those things. And so hence, this is what we've done today. Uh, God, I, I pray that this story would not just be something that we can share by rote in a way that we're detached from, but that as we prepare to share it with those around us, God, that it'd be a story that's firmly entrenched in who we are. That when we think about you, we stand in awe of the glory and majesty of who you are. We worship you with genuineness and authenticity in greater and fuller ways. And God, when we understand the depths to which we fell and the greatness of our sin, we sing about your mercy with full conviction and with full, full joy and, and, and delight that out of our brokenness, you chose to save us. And that we understand, as we'll rehearse in the coming weeks, that Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. And that Jesus delights in giving himself for us if we'll but turn to him. So God, thank you for meeting us here. Please continue to make this story our own, that we might share it with the world, that you might receive the glory. Thank you for your mercy today. In Jesus' name, amen.